Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Meta World Peace, the NBA All-Star, has kind of a reputation. He's the sort of player who leaves it all on the court. In the prime of his career, he'd play 48 minutes. He'd drive the lane. He'd play tough defense. He'd get tossed from games all the time. It was a double-edged sword. Coaches loved his passion, but sometimes it could get out of hand. He spent hundreds of hours working on that, even since he's retired, doing therapy, meditating, taking medication. But part of the struggle is he's always been like that. Like when I was a kid, I remember, I remember throwing a chair at a referee. I was in the eighth grade, and somebody fouled me. He didn't call it. We were losing. I was so mad. I throw the chair, and he was a police officer, by the way. Then I get kicked out of CYO. Can never play again. I've been suspended every year I was in school, by the way. I think I said that in my book. I was suspended every single year. Preschool, nursery, all the way up to high school. It's bullseye. This week, my conversation with Meta World Peace, formerly known as Ron Artest. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this one. The highs and lows of his career, the fights, the championships, plus the time he met Kobe Bryant at the NBA Finals while Kobe was literally taking a shower. I remember him being so mad. And the funny thing is, and he turns around and he sees me. He's like, he almost like laughed probably. What are you doing here? You know, like, how, how is this? How, why are you in the shower? <laughs> We'll also talk about his childhood. Matt is from New York. He grew up in Queensbridge, the biggest public housing complex in the country, which was hard for a lot of reasons, as you'd expect, especially when you're trying to find a place to practice. Sometimes I will walk away from the neighborhood, 45th Road, down Vernon Boulevard, Long Island City. It's like the real estate boom. That's crazy. When I was there, there was no real estate boom. It was just like prostitutes and drugs and walking like maybe five to six blocks just to get down to a court, just to practice. I did anything to find a hoop. I would never let a day go by where I couldn't find a hoop. I would find one somewhere. Plus, producer and DJ Cut Chemist tells us about the song that changed his life. And I'll tell you about one of the bravest people I've ever known. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Meta World Peace has a big personality, which is saying a lot for an NBA player. I mean, even in the finals this year, you have your heroes like LeBron James and Steph Curry and your supposed villains like Draymond Green or, or LeBron James, depending on where you're from. LeBron James is definitely the bad guy. Go dubs. And if you polled NBA fans, Meta World Peace would probably wind up in the villain category, even though he's been named an all-star and won an NBA championship in 2010. He's one of the most polarizing players in the history of the game. He was born Ron Artest. He changed his name in 2012. He grew up in Queensbridge, New York, the same massive housing project that was home to players like Lamar Odom and to rappers like Nas and the duo Mob Deep. He got drafted in the first round in 1999 by the Chicago Bulls. As a player, he was always an elite defender, but he had a reputation for losing his cool. When it worked, it made him passionate, tough, and nearly impossible to get past. But when it didn't, things went south easy. 
He'd play dirty. He'd get into dust-ups on the court. Once in 2004 at a game in Detroit, a hard foul between players escalated into an all-out brawl between players and fans. The incident, now infamous, was called the Malice at the Palace. Now our test has jumped over the scorer's table and is trying to get down to the bench. Our test is in the stands. Oh, this is awful. Fans are getting involved. Steven Jackson's in the fans. Rasheed Wallace going into the stands. The security trying to somehow restore order. But Meta World Peace has been honest about his regrets in life. And in his years as a player and now as a coach, he's become a powerful advocate for mental health care. After he helped lead the Lakers to a championship in 2010, he even thanked his therapist. I definitely want to thank my doctor, Dr. Sandy, my, um, my psychiatrist. She really helped me relax a lot. Thank you so much. It's so difficult to play. All this, There's so much commotion going on in the playoffs. And she helped me relax. I thank you so much. Now he's written a memoir about his life, No Malice, My Life in Basketball, how a kid from Queensbridge survived the streets, the brawls, and himself to become an NBA champion. In it, he recounts his triumphs and his shortcomings, including, of course, that incident in Detroit. It's a story with a lot of poignant, reflective lows, but also some pretty terrific highlights. Our test, that's a three. Meta World Peace, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Yes, thanks for having me. Absolutely. One of the things that I found the most fascinating in your book was you talking about growing up in Queensbridge in New York. Um, for folks who have never been there, can you describe what it was like when you were a kid in the 80s? Yeah, and uh, I grew up in 1979, and then in the 80s, it was, it was tough because... Although you had your kid moments, you had fun, you were in the park, you're doing different things like playing skelly or hopscotch. Then you also had those moments where, you know, drug transactions, uh, gunshots, fights, and, uh, you know, nobody's motivated to become educated. You know, all those things were taking place and you just become that. Um, I always tell my kids, you always got to watch who you're around because you will start to act like those type of, those people. You know, and it's not that they're bad people, but if you're trying to be innovative and progressive, you know, it's going to be hard to do that in the environment like I grew up in. You grew up with a lot of family in your house, right? Yes. How big was your family? Family was big. At one point, we had 17 people in a three-bedroom. We did have about 13 people in a one-bedroom. So yeah, I always when I once I made it to the NBA, I didn't think twice about buying a house for me and my 
two kids and my wife. It was about my two kids, wife, my mom, my sisters. Like everybody's gonna have rooms. You know, <laughs> that's 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 my thought process when I was young. Did you have this? I mean, like I grew up mostly an only child. Okay. My wife grew up in a big Catholic family. Okay. And when we got together when we were teenagers, I was always anxious being at her house. Yeah. Because there was just always people around. It was very normal for her. Yeah. And for me, I was just like, I just want to go sit and read a book somewhere quiet. You know what right. I mean? Like just, just to have some yeah peace. And everyone was like being nice to me. You know right. what I mean? But I think for her, it was sometimes it was the opposite. You know, it was like if there wasn't that clamor, then she wasn't at home. Right. And it's true. And that's how you grow up. You get used to it. It's like that for anybody, any situation, any any demographic, any color of your skin. When you grow up in a certain environment, in a certain way, it's going to affect you. So even if you grow up rich, but your parents is not home a lot, maybe you have nannies, and the nannies are just doing their job. They're going to give you anything you want just to shut you up. You're going to grow up like an entitled kid, you know? Or maybe you're like um, Stephen Curry. You know, he, his dad grew up pretty wealthy. Well, his dad made it, and he grew up pretty wealthy, but he's still a German kid. So something's happening in that household. And you can see their parents are on TV together, you know, and, and not everybody is as fortunate. Um, and the, look at a guy like LeBron James. You don't really see his father in the picture, but you see his mom, very supportive. You know, and so it's amazing, like, what shapes a person. What do you think it was that shaped you? For me, I mean, definitely, definitely my mom, my dad. But you know, they were they were together when you were very young, and then separated. But they were both part of your life. Right? Yeah, they was a major part of my life. So I got that's why people see two sides of her on Tesla lot. It's not one side, because I experienced that mother and father laughing, tickling each other, the love. I seen that, and then like the next week, you will see the fighting and stuff. So then you see that. But then they're still together. So now that becomes normal. <laughs> That's a normal. Like, okay, mom and dad fought today. No problem. They're still there. I'm happy. I don't care. You know? Um, but then when they separate, that's a problem. <laughs> you know? Because I need my mom. I need that hug when I go to school. And I need my dad because I need that hug. I need to sit on his lap. And that, you know, that's, you know, that causes a lot of confusion and frustration. I think a lot of times for kids whose parents have contentious relationships or whose parents split up, one of the hardest things is the kids just don't have any power right. in their lives. And to have to have something that painful happen and feel like you don't have a way to feel, you know, like you must in some way be responsible in part, but also that you you are responsible for doing something to make it better and not having any tool to do that because you're a kid. You you don't have the power to do that. Yeah, you don't. You really don't. I remember, I remember the times my mom and dad would fight. And when my dad and mom would fight, I literally felt helpless. I, I know I was crazy enough to get a brick and throw it at someone. <laughs> but I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to miss. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's, But you're helpless. You can't do nothing. And it's like you don't want this. You want it to stop. You know, um, and I know a lot of kids go through that, you know, um, and immediately when I started to have fights with my um, ex-wife and verbal fights in front of my children, it, at that time, it's like, OK, I don't think we could be together <laughs> because um, I was 
spiraling out of control. You know, um, and 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 not not being a, a loyal, a faithful partner, not being a good parent. So at that, no, for me, I said, okay, I have to separate. I've seen this before, you know, and uh, for that, I have a better relationship with my kids and a better relationship with my ex-wife. Unfortunately, is under these circumstances, but I've seen that whole story before. When did you start playing basketball? I started playing when I was eight. Yeah, my dad brought me on the court. I forget how he got on the court, but I think like he thought I could release some energy. Your dad had been a fighter, right? He was a he was a boxer. Like My a dad was a boxer. boxer. Yes, Golden Gloves, and then he had me. When he had me, he got a job. He's he was supporting his family. He was a hard worker, really hard worker. Is he as big as you are? How tall are you? He's six two. He's wide. He's probably about two forty. When he was in his prime, like two forty. Uh, my family's very like we don't look as heavy as we are. Um, you know, I'm like 270. I don't look 270. And we all like that. And um, so we all, I always wanted to box. He never let us box, though. Never let us box. I mean, I can understand why he wouldn't want to let you box. Yeah. It's not safe. Yeah. He didn't. We we would go see him train, and, he, and we would see him do push-ups. And he's coming home, this big man. And he was he was cut up muscles everywhere. And it's like, wow, I want to be like Dad. <laughs> you know? And... Then you see him play basketball. He, he was a really good basketball player. Um, could only go right, though, but he, was really, he could really shoot. Had a really good, uh, like, a, kind of a pro jumper, you know. Um, and it's like, wow, I want to be, be like Dad. <laughs> you know, um, re- re- really interesting guy. Do you think that part of your relationship with basketball was about your relationship with your dad, given that you had so many siblings and in the later part of your childhood, your dad didn't live in the house. Um, that this was like a place where you could be with your dad? It could have been. It could have been, you know, because that was the place I was with my dad. When he left, I was pretty upset, you know, and um, and uh, it was all I had um, at, at a point in time, you know, and when they broke up, I would just go outside and play basketball, you know. So, yeah, it could have been something like that. Um because I was so passionate. I mean, I put everything, I left everything on that court. And I remember the days where, you know, when I was able to play a full 48 minutes without getting tired and like, and people were like, why are you so crazy? And they just want people, players would ask me to not play so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Literally like, hey, um, can you be easy today? <laughs> I remember them days, it was pretty interesting. Did you play angry when you were a kid? When I was a kid, we played angry. Yeah, because in my neighborhood, everybody was angry. <laughs> when you're on the court, I mean, you know, uh, to get on the court, it was only one court on the block unless you go to another block. And sometimes you don't want to go to the, another block because you don't know nobody on that other block. You know, and then eventually I started to go to the other blocks and just really, that's when you know you're kind of tough because you're not afraid to go on somebody else's block and then, you know, give them some work. You know, and that made me tough, too, because I used to be afraid to walk on the other blocks. And then they had one court behind the neighborhood, but that's like, that's where a lot of things go down, you know, maybe drug transactions or, or somebody get murdered in the back. It's, it's nobody back there to protect you, you know, right under the bridge, you know, and then I started going back there by myself, you know, and uh, it was nervous, you know, just like shooting and just like wondering who's behind you, you know, um, and then... <laughs> And then I started. It started. I started to become a little, a little tough. And I would walk. Sometimes I would walk away from the neighborhood. 
45th Road down Vernon Boulevard, Long Island City. It's like the real estate boom. That's crazy. When I was there, it was no real estate boom. It was just like prostitutes and drugs. And walking like maybe five to six blocks just to get down to a court, just to practice. I did anything to find a hoop. I would never let a day go by where I couldn't find a hoop. I would find one somewhere. Do you feel like there was a time in your life when you decided that you were not going to be involved in selling drugs? Ooh, yeah, it was. It was. Um, but the first time I sold drugs, <laughs> quite honestly, because, you know, I've seen it being cooked up, and I was a young kid just playing basketball, but it just so happens that, you know, my cousins was cooking a lot of drugs, you know, and they all served time and everything. And then, uh, you know, my other cousins, it was just, it was just like, <laughs> like, not my dad or anybody, my brothers, but... A lot, a lot of my cousins and, and my older brother actually he went to jail for 10 years for drug trafficking but um you know it was just like I would ask my cousin for some money he'd give it to me and I'm like well I could buy some chips and I know like the cousin who gave me money he sells drugs and he he tells me this is how you make a cookie but don't eat it because it's not a cookie um I'm like yeah I want to do that <laughs> you know and uh the first time I did it, I was 13 I bagged it up cut up the crack bagged it up and then um I gave the crackhead the money. I know exactly who it is, too. <laughs> and um, and um, I'm like, I didn't take the money. I didn't want the transaction. I was looking outside. I'm 13 you, years you old. You passed off the drugs, but you you freaked out and I, didn't, she, didn't take the payoff. I couldn't take the money. I would go back in the house. And then my cousin, he was like, all right, where's the money? I'm like, yo, I can't. I can't do this. <laughs> you know, but uh, it was crazy because that's where we played Nintendo at. That's where we, um, um, all the technology was there. You know, and it was like a lot of things, uh, I guess, criminal criminal activity going on. But then all the fun was there, you know. And and it was a Christian house, which is crazy because they never put anything around their mom. But it was she's super, super Christian, you know, super into God, into God. So it was like it was weird, man. It was weird. Man, I've never been tougher a day in my life. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I. I remember the point in my adulthood where I had the realization that everyone around me that I thought was weak because they didn't always have their defenses up, everyone around me who wasn't always having that feeling of looking over their shoulder, I imagine those people, I was like, well, these people need to take care of themselves, right? Yeah. Like walking down the street, you got to keep your head up. You got to keep your eyes out. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you got to know, you got to know if somebody's on the, you know, if somebody's right. coming at you, mm -hmm. you know, you got to know when to cross the street. And this is even, again, I'm the least tough guy in the world. <laughs> um, and I remember when I had this realization, like, oh, wait, they're not broken. I'm broken. <laughs> I was yeah. like, right. Other people don't aren't living that way, right? Because they didn't have to deal with whatever people trying to sell in Morocco when they were nine. You know, man, man. I mean, I've been one of my really good friends, Bantu. Um, Bantu was a could have been a math genius. We was in sixth grade, fifth grade. Seventh grade, he got A's on every test, and I'm I'm here working hard trying to get A, trying to compete with this guy, and I can never get over like a seventy. But I'm happy when I get seventy. And you loved math, that's and I love math. But I wasn't great at math. But that's what people think I was great. I wasn't good. I was driven. 
it was my favorite subject and I wanted to be great at it. You know, so Bantu was super smart and should have got a scholarship to Harvard or something, but chose to sell drugs. And he would sell drugs to his mom. You know, and it was the craziest thing ever to watch. And I knew his mom. I used to go at this house. I remember getting Kool-Aid, you know, because I didn't have Kool-Aid in my house all the time. I'd go to Bantu's house and get a cold glass of Kool-Aid. And, um, you know, he would sell, sell drugs to his mom. And I'm like, when I started to go to high school, I'm like, Bantu, are you going to play basketball? He was smart, a lot of muscles, about four inches shorter than me, and looked like a model, had a great look. And he can do anything he want with his life, but he loved them streets. Unbelievable. It seems like you were not the kind of highly touted basketball prospect when you were a young teenager uh, that some of the other guys who went on to have your kind of professional basketball success were. Um, were you just working harder? Yeah. I, I knew I wasn't that good. I, was going, I played against Lamar. Another guy named Raheem Johnson, who was Lamar Odom. Lamar Odom. I played against Lamar. Lamar was always amazing. His partner, Raheem Johnson, was better, <laughs> better than both of us by far. Um, but he just, you know, he loved the streets also. And, uh, yeah, but I knew I had an uphill battle. I remember seeing Shea Cotton and hearing about Shea Cotton. And I remember, I remember hearing about uh, Kobe and Tracy McGrady and I'm like, okay, if I'm going to make it, like, I got to go in because and, and, I wasn't as good. You know, and people could see my game. I have a lot of flaws in my game even now, like when I played. And they knew I wasn't that good, but I was tough enough where I wasn't going to let you stop me, you know. Um, and I was going to stop you, you know. And I was going to be on the floor and play a lot of minutes. And, and nobody knew I was going to be an all-star or defense player of the year and possible MVP candidate and knocking down big shots. You know, and I, it was just hard work. And it happens a lot. It's not just me. You look at Mitchell and you look at a lot of these guys, you know, coming out of nowhere. Kuzma from the Lakers, you know, they just work working harder. It seems like you had the same problems uh, playing basketball as a teenager that you had uh, in your NBA career, especially earlier in your NBA career, which is um, every so often you would, you know, th throw a whiteboard across the room or <laughs> something like that. Man, too many of those. It seems like you didn't um, – one of the things that changed as you got older was that when you were younger, at least as you describe in the book, you almost didn't think of that as a problem because it was – I mean, I imagine it was really tied into exactly the same stuff that made you work so hard. Man, yeah, it, it, it was. It was um, – like when I was a kid, I remember, I remember throwing a chair at a referee. I was in the eighth grade. And somebody fouled me. He didn't call it. We were losing. I was so mad. I throw the chair. The, the, and he was a police officer, by the way. Then I get kicked out of CYO. Can never play again. I've been suspended every year I was in school, by the way. I think I said that in my book. I was suspended every single year. Preschool, nursery, all the way up to uh, high school. My, I, I don't think I got suspended junior year. But I did it. And, and maybe I did. I cannot remember a year. <laughs> Even in college, I can't remember one year I never got suspended for something, right? And it's just like, why? where's the rage coming from? And then when I was 25, I kind of know where the rage is coming from now as I look back. You know, um, and it's not, it wasn't just from my environment. You know, it was like in the household. But, um, you know, and then my marriage counselor helped me a, a lot when I was 25. He 
he uh, opened up wounds and changed my life. And things didn't happen overnight, but I, I can sense like things is getting better. You know, things are getting better. When we continue with Bullseye after a break, I'll talk with Meta World Peace about his struggle with anger on the court and how it led to one of his other most notable fights, one with current MVP frontrunner James Harden. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lagunitas Brewing Company, whose brewmaster, Jeremy Marshall, says that when he tastes a Lagunitas ale, it's like catching a live concert. This is one of those very arrogant lead guitarists that goes to the front of the stage and slides on the knees and swings around and is just a showman. To discover how music plays a part in more than just great beer at Lagunitas, visit lagunitas.com music. It's not a secret. Parenting is hard. But maybe we shouldn't put so much pressure on ourselves. To get to good outcomes, sometimes you do better by not worrying about outcomes at all. I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of Hidden Brain. Join us as we explore two very different models of what it means to raise a human. How do you say cheese in Spanish? What show should I have on my DVR? What are the best songs of the year? Is VR cool? What's your jam? Which one of you is the Renata of the panel? For answers to these questions and so much more, come on over to Pop Rocket, a pop culture roundtable discussion that always has a fun, diverse panel talking about the stuff we love. Catch us every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you decide to get your podcast. I'm not going to judge. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Meta World Peace. He spent 18 years in the NBA, played for six teams, was an all-star and an NBA champion. His new book, No Malice, My Life in Basketball, is out now. The book talks in great detail about conflicts in his life, both on and off the court. One incident in 2012 involved him driving his elbow into the face of another player, James Harden, then of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Artest drives and finishes. And the Laker crowd fired up and a shot. As Harden goes down, and Art, uh, World Peace elbowed him. Oh, no. Ron Artest so squaring off with Serge Ibaka. Well, World, World Peace, I should say, but it may reminiscent of Ron Artest. And I don't know if it was inadvertent or not, but he hit him with an incredible elbow. Did you ever go on the court thinking, I mean, I'm talking about when you were in your late high school career when you were in college, when you first got to the NBA, did you ever go on the court thinking like, I'm going to do whatever it takes today, I'm going to win today, and if somebody gets hurt or whatever, that's the cost of doing business? Or were you going out there every day thinking like, I'm going to keep it clean today, but then something went wrong? And Right. When I played basketball, I've never hurt anyone. Um, I've never wanted to hurt anyone. Definitely never wanted to give up space, you know, and that was one thing, like, if you wanted to post up, I'm not letting you get to post up, and, you know, and you have to go around me or through me to, to get there. So, but hurting people was never an option. A lot of the flagrant fouls came from the hustle. It's just always, always extreme hustle. Um, sometimes, like, if you're in the air and I don't want you to get layup, I'll just grab you out the air and put you down slowly, you know, or... If you're going for a layup, I'm going to try to block your shot, you know, or I'm hustling, but I've never, I never hurt no one. 
The only one I came close to hurting was James Harden. Um, but he came, he pushed me from behind. And the elbow was vicious <laughs> when I elbowed James Harden. It was this, probably, a, this is kind of a famous play for a famous NBA play. plays, uh, yeah. NBA fans. But um, the two of you were running down the court after a basket. You got tangled up. We didn't get tangled up. He came, he came behind me and kind of gave me a push. And, it was a light push. And you gave him what maybe you intended as a, hey, give me some room, it arm, was, elbow. Can, can you curse on the show? You can. I mean, we'll bleep it. Okay. Well, it, it was like a get the freak away from me. Get off me. Don't touch me. Right? Um, but then, it, you know, obviously James Harden is 6'4". I'm 6'6". Six, six. I wasn't judging my distance, and it, and it hit him right in the back of the ear. And it didn't hit him flush. He sold it a little bit on the floor, and then I was suspended a couple games. We played them in the first round. It was a smart move by him. Smart move because then I came back, and by the time I was in rhythm, it was already game seven or game five. We, we was done in the playoffs. We played them in the first round. But, um, but you know, um, that, was the, that was the only thing I really regret in my career because I could have really hurt somebody. You know, um, but other than that, I always wanted to use all my fouls when I go into a game. I know I'm using all my fouls. I get sick. And I, I can play with five fouls. I can play five fouls for two quarters, which not many people can do it. You know, um, so coaches never felt like they had to take me out. You know, and um, it was just like, for me, I just didn't like people scoring. When the people would score, or if I would lose, you know, I didn't deal with it. I didn't deal with it how I wish I would have dealt with it. I mean, I wish I could just lose and go home, eat, just go home. No, I wish I could have just, like, lost a game and just, like, and still go out with my teammates and eat some dinner. I, I was literally sick. Uh, I, take, I took it home. I argued with my wife, you know. Um, I don't go out with my kids because I want to go to the gym and get better. We would be in Indiana, you know, uh, lose a game, and everybody's going home. I'm in the gym, you know, um, and my wife is waiting for me. And I just say, just go home. I'll see you later. Don't get home at 2 a.m., you know, something like that. I hated losing. You know, I just couldn't take it. I couldn't deal with it. Couldn't deal with it. After that, uh, after that incident with Harden, did you ever talk to him? I didn't speak to him, but I seen him. I didn't reach out to him or anything like that. Um, but when I saw him, um, it didn't land flush. That was a hard elbow. If it land flush, Harden would have had a super knot on his head. He would not have been able to function. It didn't land flush, um, and I nor did I wanted to. It was more like when when he when he shoved me from behind a little bit. It wasn't tough. It was it wasn't hard. But I was like, it was more like I wanted to shove him. I wanted to literally shove him and like push him, but it was his body wasn't on my body. It wasn't connected, so it was all air and all momentum. You know what I'm saying? I couldn't slow it down, um, and uh, and then partially I wasn't looking for what I was hitting, um, so. Um, and uh, and then I, I I thought it was Ibaka also, because me and Ibaka have a little issue, and he was a little taller than Harden. That whole so that whole incident was kind of like that. That's one thing I regret, like even more than the brawl, you know, because uh, in my track record, I never hurt nobody on the court. I never nobody ever got a hurt knee. I mean, you might have ran into me and maybe got bruised or something, <laughs> but I never took anybody out. Never low bridged nobody, you know. Never came up under nobody's foot. Took them out the playoffs. N- n- none of that stuff. You know, I was watching the brawl that you referred to, which is 
commonly known as uh, the malice at the palace. Yeah. <laughs> um, and your book is called No Malice. Um, and, you know, I didn't remember that much about it other than um, you and some teammates had gone into the stands and that it had led to monstrous suspensions. Yeah. That was pretty much all. I, I mean, this is 15 years ago now. Yeah. And as I was watching it and, and also reading about it in your book, the thing that I didn't remember was you uh, you had basically gotten pushed on the court and you backed away. You went and lay down on the scores announcer's table. Almost like there was still, you know kind of sports fighting going on, which is to say like that kind of like pushing and shoving, get back to your bench, I'm with my teammate stuff happening. Um, but, but you were laying on the table like you had just like taken yourself out of the situation. I was trying to. <laughs> I was trying to. Man. I was trying to. What were you thinking when you, when you went and did that? Do you remember? Well, I remember, I remember when Ben hit me pushed me um, after I fouled him he shoved me and I'm like okay it was no way we were going to be able to to fight the refs is in front of us fans is around my hands was down if he wanted to punch me he would have punched me at that point it was a shove and I'm like okay cool he's about to, he, he should have been ejected you know usually a ref if you look at some of the instances you'll see referees immediately call a tech it was it was never even a tech called in that game, so I just said you know that whole time. So it was nothing else, no way to go to the bench. The bench was too; it wasn't as stable for me. And then I saw the score table. I said, "I'm just gonna chill out here for a little bit," you know. And that was it. I was just trying. I was just, I'm just gonna chill until this is until this is handled. Stephen Jackson's over there, so I'm not I'm not even worried because Stephen Jackson, Jermaine O'Neal's there. My team was crazy. You know, so when they all stood up, I'm like, this is, I'm not worried. You know, if it was, if it was another team, <laughs> I would have had to, I don't think I would have been, I felt as safe just staying there. But then you caught it unexpectedly from the crowd. Yeah, you know, before I got that drink thrown on me, Ben Wallace pointing at me, hey, I'm going to get you whatever he's saying. Then he threw his uh, a towel at me, hit me. So I go to the ref and people see me. But they don't show that on TV. Say, what's going on here? Then he throws his headband and wristband. So now at that point, my blood is boiling. Because I'm like, I really don't want to relax. I would love to fight you, but it's too many people. I don't want to look like a fool. I would like a clean fight. And, and then when the fan hit me, I was just, I lost it. <laughs> you know? Um, and you know what? I, I didn't really lose it. Because when I went in that stand, I didn't even throw a punch. I, I grabbed him. And what I wanted to do was say, you 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 effing a hole and shake him and don't you, don't ever throw anything at me like I will kill you for doing that I'm no sucker blah 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 you know and that's what I did I didn't throw a punch until the guy who came up and held me and I'm thinking like okay he's grabbing me to say stop but then he stopped punching me in the face that's when the first punch was thrown you know um, yeah now Anish going in the stands. Some would argue that was wrong, you know. Um, I, I would argue that. <laughs> yes, a, a lot of people argue that was wrong. Some people loved it. They thought it was like WWE, um, and they praised me for it, which I don't know. I don't want to be praised for that. And then some people see the step-by-step process, what happened. Do you think it was wrong? 
I don't think it was wrong. No, I don't think it was wrong. I think um, if somebody attacks you, you have to protect yourself because look at all the bullies out there. Then you see these people committing suicide because they're afraid to fight a bully. Like, never be afraid of a bully. You know, um, never be afraid of somebody who's trying to embarrass you. You have to protect yourself. And that actually, and that's how how I grew up. I couldn't survive, I couldn't have survived if I take like one story when I was at Astoria Park, Astoria Queens. First time I ever been robbed. These kids sat us down. We was in the pool. We had our locks. They sat us down and said, y'all sit there, don't move. We was young kids in their neighborhood. And we sat there and didn't move. And I remember being humiliated that day. I was 12 years old. It ain't like Muhammad Ali getting his bike taken, like, stolen. Or, you know, this was like people sitting there telling us, don't move. And I never been in a situation like that. I didn't know what they was going to do. So they took our locks, you know, and then they take our, they didn't take our clothes but they did take our locks, maybe took some money. And I said, I'm killing anybody who ever do that to me again. I remember that day. And I used to walk around every neighborhood. That's why people in New York City kind of knows me. They know me for going to any neighborhood. And um, I remember somebody told me they was going to rob me. I was in the NBA. They said they was going to rob me if I come back because I wasn't getting money. I went back to that neighborhood with no shirt on. And I was ready, you know. And um, I always roll, I always roll with people who was ready. And that's what I had to. You know, um, I always, like my crew, we was young. And, you know, and but we would we would do what we had to do, um, you know, violently. And um, it sucked, you know. So that leads you to the brawl. You know, like I was so I was so upset, you know, um, that somebody would do that to me. So I don't feel it was wrong. I feel like we were just protecting ourselves. You know, back in the days in my neighborhood, we lived in right there in Long Island City. So it was like the drug hub, <laughs> quite frankly. But the people would come from other neighborhoods and murder people in my community, trying to set up shop in my community, not even from my community, you know? And then some people in my community, they look bad because, you know, they trying to protect us, but they protect, they shooting people, you know, they protecting the blocks, you understand? All they doing is trying to keep, well, they want to keep the drugs in the neighborhood, but they don't want nobody else coming in our neighborhood, and not only selling drugs, but committing murders and crimes and killing people in our neighborhood, you know? So that was the type of stuff, like, that was embedded, quite frankly. And it takes a long time for you to get that, you know, to get into a different mind frame and say, okay, how can I help these type of people? You know, that's why I do so much mental health work. That's why I do so much work with schools. That's why I'm so into the kids. You know, that, it's that passion because, you know, I don't want nobody to grow up how I grew up. It seemed like in the book, one of the things that you regretted most about that brawl was that while you loved playing for a world championship team in Los Angeles and you loved many other places you played, that Indiana, I mean, kind of counterintuitively, you know, for a guy who thought about changing his name to Queensbridge at one point, but, like, Indiana was your home and, like, you seem to have had so much of your heart invested in... Indiana as a place and as a team and you know you were playing with one of the greatest NBA players ever Reggie Miller who yeah. had, didn't have a championship and you know it was the, it was maybe the peak of that team um that maybe you maybe you even almost felt shame about the fact that you had that your actions and your teammates actions had in a way derailed that yeah it was, it sucked man like people don't understand like as as a basketball player, my colleagues are Hall of Famers. 
to not have Reggie Miller have a championship ring. It sucks, and that's why part, that's one of the reasons why I gave away my ring, even though I wanted to win more. It just didn't feel the same. I was very grateful, you know, and, and I, it was luck, luckily I got one. But, like, you know, for that to happen, it, it just sucked, you know. And I don't have a big relationship with Reggie Miller, even though I played with him for a long time. I wasn't very social. I didn't talk to a lot of people back then. And, um, you know, I take the blame for that. And I'm sure they don't care. They're living great lives and everybody's doing well financially and family-wise, happy and loving. You know, but there's something about the ring, you know, and it just kills me probably more than it kills them, you know, for them not to have one, for Jermaine not to have one, you know, for for Donnie Walsh not to have one. You know, these are Donnie Walsh came to my wedding. You know, Chuck Person came to my wedding. And, so, you know, sometimes it's like you think about yourself more than others, and I'm still getting better at that. You know, um, and they were just so supportive. People don't understand how supportive Indiana was. They made sure I got to my therapy sessions, you know, made sure I could. It was hard for me to function from game to game. I couldn't. I was so unstable. Literally, I needed to mentally prepare myself, and they was there for me. We'll finish up my interview with Meta World Peace after a quick break. Then, the song that changed Cut Chemist's life. Don't go anywhere. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. So you just woke up, and you want to find out about the latest news. That is when you turn to Up First, the 10-minute news podcast from NPR News. Here, Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it. Oh, good oh, man, stuff every time. Uh, well, I hope that you're enjoying this podcast you're listening to as much as we are pretending to. But anyway, why not listen to another podcast too? It's called The Flop House. And on our podcast, uh, we have recently watched a movie, often a bad movie, and we review it on our podcast, but mainly talk about other stuff and, I don't know, hang out. It's all about hanging out, feeling like you're being with your best friends. Who are your best friends? Us three. Dan McCoy, <laughs> Emmy Award-winning writer for The Daily Show, Stuart Wellington, owner of the best bar in Brooklyn, Hinterlands, and Elliot Kalin, former Emmy-winning head writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, former head writer of Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Return, uh, so many things. Author of the upcoming children's book, All right, Dog. that's enough. The Elliot's credits just go on and on. Yeah, but if you like the idea of listening to... Th- Three funny guys talk about bad movies, then why not come over and listen to The Flop House? It's uh, available at MaximumFun.org or wherever fine podcasts are found. So get out of here. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Meta World Peace, spent 18 years in the NBA. He's got a new book out. It's called No Malice, My Life in Basketball. It's out now. Um, I, I want to ask you something a little lighter. Uh, did you actually uh, recruit yourself onto the Los Angeles Lakers while Kobe Bryant was taking a shower after the end of the NBA Finals? Yeah, it was an interesting story. <laughs> it was an interesting story because a lot of it's, it's a the story got. I want to hear it from you yeah, because from I've heard. I know how sports media yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people love to make stuff up, especially when it's involved me. So. I went there with a Sacramento Kings shirt on because I wanted to sign back with the Sacramento Kings for, for life. So, but I wanted to go to this game. 
But I didn't want to act like I'm trying to play for Boston or the Lakers, like I'm a, like I'm a trader. No, I'm not that. I'm tougher than that. So I go there with the Kings jersey on. And my best friend, my good friend Lamar Odom was playing on that team. You know, we played with each other since we were kids. So I was hoping they win. So after the game, they lose by 30. Um, and I see the, the, the Boston wins. I'm like, oh, wow, I need this feeling. So I want to say bye to Lamar. So I, see, I go in the back. Security, let, they let me in the back. And um, I see Phil Jackson. I say, Phil Jackson, great job. I never really talked to Phil like that because I didn't know him. But Phil's my favorite coach ever, right? You know, Chicago Bulls. You had grown up a Bulls fan in New York. A Bulls fan, huge Phil Jackson fan. <laughs> a B.J. Armstrong man, if I remember correctly. Absolutely, B.J. Armstrong, P.J. So then after I say hi to Phil, I see Brian Shaw. And I say, I'm trying to find Kobe, and I'm saying, anybody see Kobe? I want to tell him good game because I'm a big fan of Kobe, even though we have wars. Um, they say he's in the shower. He's, and Brian Shaw said, just, he's, in, he's right there. So I'm like, all right, cool. I just go in the shower. You know, Kobe's butt naked. You know, but he's facing the other way. <laughs> and I say, um, I just wanted to tell him, like, hey, man, I'm so, like, proud of you. And good game, man, and, and you're going to get him next time. I wasn't saying I'm, I'm going to be there with you. I was just, like, saying, like, you know, like, you're, you're going to get him next time. Um, but we wound, we, we wound up playing on the same team. I remember him being so mad. And the funny thing is, he turns around and, and he don't want to talk to nobody. Kobe's like, when he's mad, he's mad. And he turns around and he sees me. He's like, he, he, he almost like laughed probably. What are you doing here? You know, like, how, how is this? Why are you in the shower? You know? And it's just like, because I want to say, because I, I got to go. I don't feel like waiting for you to get out of the shower. You know, I got to go. But I wanted to tell you, you know, good game. <laughs> funny, funny, funny story. I was thinking about Ichiro Suzuki, the baseball player, who just, um, he didn't retire, but he stopped playing for the Mariners. Um, and, you know, Ichiro Suzuki is is famous for his incredible drive, right? He, yeah. He brings his self-designed workout equipment with him everywhere he goes. I love it. <laughs> including just on the road with I the team. I love him already. <laughs> and, you know, he played... In the major leagues till the age, I believe he's 44 now. Um, and he was famously like would rent a ballpark in, um, in Japan in the winter and train six hours a day in the snow. And I thought it's a, it's a beautiful miracle to have that kind of drive to be yeah. – and, and you know, it worked, too. You know, like, what an incredible, beautiful baseball player Ichiro has been for 25 years now. But I thought, when he's done with that, what I, there's nothing in my life that takes up that much space <laughs> that anyone could take away from me, much less to have just time take it away from me. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed... I I felt incredibly sad about it. And you seem like you were that kind of basketball player, a basketball player who was defined by your drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It must have been incredibly difficult to stop. It, it was. Oh, you know, it's, 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 that's a great statement and comment you made. When I was 29 years old, I said, I'm downsizing my life. I no longer care about pulling up the clubs and Bentleys. I bought a Prius. Um, 
I lived in a little apartment on Westwood. I was going to get a studio apartment, but right before um, the problem was my kids moved with me, but they was living with my ex-wife in Indiana. And then when they moved with me, all my kids, um, because we just got me and my ex-wife have a relationship like that. So then that's the only reason I got a bigger place, <laughs> you know. Um, so it was it was such a good feeling to down to downsize my my thought process, not having to be number one no more. I didn't care. I worked hard, but didn't care. Um, not having to impress anybody anymore. It was the first time in my life I felt like that. And now I travel by myself. You know, uh, last year I went to Warren Buffett conference, right? And I was by myself. I was like the only black guy there, right? And um, But I'm by myself, like 20,000 people in this arena in Omaha. And it's just such a good feeling. Whereas before it was me, my boys, always had to be around people, you know? And, um, and yeah, it was hard. It was, it was really hard. Um, because you always feel like you got to impress someone. And you're always kind of shoveling dirt in a hole, you know, like you're yeah. trying to, if you, as long as I keep going, I'm doing something. But Yeah, you know, it's like, who are you, who are you really trying to impress? You know, so I, it, 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 I remember when I was 20, when I was 21, I was going through withdrawals because I was, had a bad habit of drinking and smoking. And I remember that being the toughest to get off. I'm like, I got to stop this lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. And it took me it took me about two years to feel comfortable without drinking and smoking. You know, um but it's so it's so worth it. You know, I feel great. I'm thirty-eight, you know, I feel great mentally, physically, and uh, it was at those times them hurdles is tough, but once you get over that hurdle, it's, it's a great feeling. Well, Matter World Peace, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk to me. It was really great to have you on the show. It was it was great. It was, it was great that we had a chance to get these stories out. I love just, you know, talking hopefully this inspires somebody and they really like that conversation. Meta World Peace. His memoir, No Malice, My Life in Basketball, is in bookstores now. I'm not going to front. I loved it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Time now for the song that changed my life, a segment where we bring on people who make great music and talk to them about a song that defined who they are. This time, Cut Chemist. Born Lucas McFadden and raised right here where we make the show in Los Angeles, Cut Chemist is a DJ and a producer. He was instrumental in the early success of the group Ozo Motley, and he also co-founded the Jurassic Five, the iconic underground rap group. Hey, yo, my quality control. Captivates your party patrol. Your mind, body, and soul. Bubble. The bell tolls like the rhythm explode. Big, bad, and bold. Being boys of both. Cut Chemist has also made a name for himself as a solo artist. Earlier this year, he released his first album in 12 years. It's called Die Cut. Chemist got into hip hop at a pretty young age. Too young, actually, to get past the doorman at most nightclubs. Then he heard about a place called the Good Life Cafe in South LA, an all ages health food store with open mics that in the years since have become absolutely legendary. The Good Life scene was known for an uncompromising attitude bring innovations or else. 
Legendary L.A. acts like Snoop Dogg and the Black Eyed Peas and Ice Cube were known to stop by. And the venue fostered its own innovative artists like Abstract Root and Medusa and the Freestyle Fellowship. The Fellowship was a boundary-defying underground crew fronted by MCs Micah Nine and AC Alone. At a time when West Coast hip-hop was defined in the popular consciousness by death row records acts like Snoop and Dre, Freestyle Fellowship bucked the norms. They fused jazz and soul samples into their beats, working in lyrics about black consciousness and psychedelia, and they also, like their name suggests, just improvised. Their goal was always to create something entirely new. Cut Chemist was a fan after one song. Running but naked, hysterical in the flames, miracles never claim. Captive, devious, dubious, doopies, doom, damned in hell forever. Jump back, you crack, crack, pepper. Suffer heavy consequences in a harsh, harsh environmental blend. But it was something from their second record, 1993's Inner City Griots, that changed Cut Chemist's life. The song was called Park Bench People, and it was so far afield from anything he'd heard before, it changed his idea of what hip-hop could be, and eventually, by extension, his whole understanding of music. The first time I heard Park Bench People by Freestyle Fellowship, well, I was in the living room of my mom's house uh, on a recliner, which is where I listened to all music. I had a boombox on the side of it. The, the recliner was a rocker, and so I would, I would be rocking, like literally and figuratively. And somebody had sneaked out a demo tape. I got it from a certain person named... We knew they got signed by 4th and Broadway, which was Eric B. and Rakim's label. We were very excited that... The major music industry took an interest to our our heroes. Freestyle Fellowship had always been known for their innovative and unusual rap styles. But on this song, it was, it was something more than that. What made Freestyle Fellowship my heroes was the fact that they weren't afraid to explore new territory in music and art. This was a song that was trying to do something outside of their comfort zone. You know, one of the most surprising things right from Jump about Park Bench People was that it was completely void of samples, and it was all live instrumentation. Well, I believe that's a saxophone that we're hearing right now, uh, and then the vibes. And here's Mike Nine on the vocal, and he's singing. And it reminded me of Gil Scott Heron. And I loved Gil Scott Heron. And you know, you can hear the naivete in it. It's not like he's a complete seasoned singer, but he's good enough. And I like the fact that there's a little unseasonedness to it. I mean, that's what made it approachable to me, was the fact that here's somebody doing something that they no, normally don't do, but they're doing it anyway, because it's in their heart. So Park Bench People is inspired by Red Clay by Freddie Hubbard. But it doesn't sample it. It just 
interpolates it musically with live instruments. And you know, he is flipping it. Like he didn't abandon the Mike and I style. Like people love the other, you know, he's double timing it and flipping it. But you know, like using like a little bit of scat in there, and you can hear maybe a little bit of Leon Thomas. You know, a little bit of Andy Bay. I don't know what Micah was listening to or what JMD was feeding him, like on the music tip at the time to inspire this song. But you know, I know he was a searcher and a digger through music culture. I mean, you know, you listen to somebody like Mike and know that they have a, a, a large computer file of music in their brain. You see the children. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I can feel the dew and, you know, the moisture of sleeping in the park at night. And, uh, yeah, he's very descriptive. It almost seemed kind of autobiographical for him because it it painted a picture of, of Lemert Park. Lemert Park is a place nestled uh, within South Los Angeles. And, you know, I used to go there and buy records all the time and, and see people playing chess. And it was a very, like elderly spirit of jazz you know you could go there and just experience old LA in a, in a certain way that doesn't exist anywhere else in, in, in the city um, you could see real jazz and uh, I don't know you just felt it in the air there was something special about it it was very pleasant I was never really a jazz fan, per se, before I heard Free Stuff Fellowship. And I had been listening to these guys anyway because their records were chock full of dope samples. To go back and listen to the music with a different filter because of, of music like this that I was a fan of. Yeah, this song changed my life. Cut Chemist with the song that changed his life, Park Bench People by Freestyle Fellowship. Let's take a listen to one more song off Die Cut, his new record. This one is called Rhythm Method. The vocals are by the one and only Micah Nine. In my mind's eye, I witness a repro in a kaleidoscope of thoughts on one side. Here the two is in oblivion, dreams hide. The sweet intellect dies. You were on the quest to find the best of minds and minds will with minds and intrepidly intricate, delicate syndicate networks and scanners a human grammar and manner. When did it happen? When I was rapping, the energies happened, trapping. Your brain went insane, mundane, untamed, unclaimed, the region of the subconscious. You'll be falling in a vacuum, void, you're nauseous. As you vomit, you plummet like a comet, your stomach's a pret, so let your head cells bulge your skull. Hot and so much hot in your cottons up, and I thought inside my cerebellum. I gotta tell them it's swelling like a melon. Kali, three cranium card, Molly. But I can see you peeking through an iron diesel ducket. Sorry, Charlie's in the middle. So what like the stickers and tuck it in my pocket to kick it a breeze? Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip from me. We call it the outshot. So I was at the intersection of Alvarado and Wilshire in Los Angeles. I was a block away from my office, waiting for the light to change in my car. And I was sobbing. I don't know what reaction I expected to have when I put on that particular podcast, this one episode of 99% Invisible that was called Curb Cuts. I knew because 
a few people had said something to me about it on Twitter, that it was about Ed Roberts, who was my dad's best friend, died when I was a teenager. But when I heard Ed's mom, Zona's voice, she's 95 years old now, still kicking. I just lost it. Within a few days, he was in the hospital. And within two days of that, he was in rushed to an iron lung because he couldn't breathe anymore on his own. And then there was Ed. You know, they say audio is different from video. When somebody's talking, they're talking to you on the radio, like a phone call, like you and me now. And to hear Ed, it's almost more than I could handle, almost too intimate. Think about your own life. If you, if you had people taking care of you, making all your decisions, what is there to life? Really? My dad worked for Ed for a long time in the 80s and 90s. He and Ed actually went to college together at UC Berkeley in the early 60s, and they lived these parallel lives of activism. My dad at the time was helping to start the veterans' peace movement. Ed was fighting for the rights of people like himself, people living with disabilities. Ed caught polio as a kid just before the vaccine, two years before the vaccine, and he ended up paralyzed. He could move his head and his neck, and he could move two of his fingers— and I just read on Wikipedia now that he could move a couple of toes. He had to be in an iron lung to breathe until he taught himself this thing called frog breathing, gulping air with his mouth and neck. He could do that for a little bit. It's this thing that divers do. A wheelchair plus the frog breathing let him leave his iron lung, but not for very long. But Ed and his mom were perseverant. Ed finished high school. He'd been a teenager when he got sick, and he applied to college. UC Berkeley said they couldn't take him because they didn't have a dorm that could keep him alive. But Ed and Zona didn't think that was good enough. Eventually, they forced Berkeley to transform a wing of the on-campus hospital into a dormitory. That was Ed and Zona's rule, that it had to be a dorm with health services, not a hospital that he was allowed to live in. And that was the start of the independent living movement. There are very few people, even with the most severe disabilities, who can't take control of their own life. The problem is that people around us don't expect us to. Ed started the movement on campus. He and his wheelchair buddies were called the Rolling Quads. They fought the city and the university for the right basically to live like people, to be included in normal life, to get around and have jobs and all that stuff. Their efforts made buildings on campus accessible, then street corners in Berkeley, then the state of California, and then after 30-some years of fighting, the United States. And with today's signing of the landmark Americans for Disabilities Act, every man woman and child with a disability can now pass through once closed doors into a bright new era of equality, independence, and freedom. This historic act is the world's first comprehensive declaration of equality for people with disabilities. The first. The achievements of the movement were incredible. They gave so many of us a life and protection under the law. But that wasn't really why I was crying. I was crying because I remember Ed. I mean, I, I was a kid when I knew him. I remember he was scary, for one thing. He was a big guy. He seemed bigger lying in his iron lung in his living room in Rockridge in Oakland. 
his chair, and, and he ended up using this big motorized wheelchair, which he steered with his fingers. In his chair, he, he was just as intimidating. He had this breathing tube that made this loud kind of sucking, whooshing sound every 10 or 20 seconds when he clamped his mouth down onto it so he could breathe. Well, that was a lot for a kid. And also, Ed took up space. I mean, the iron lung was huge and the chair was big and heavy. But Ed just at some point in his life, at some point before I knew him, he just decided to be noticed. He decided that if people were going to look at him, if they were going to look at him and think that he was grotesque or pitiable, that he would just occupy their gaze, be there and be big and be tough and be heard. A lot of years ago, I decided that that uh, people were going to stare at me, and it was a lot better if I decided I was a star rather than a helpless cripple. There's a moment in the 99% Invisible episode that got me pretty good. A doctor, when he was younger, told Ed that he was destined to be a vegetable. And Ed said, great, I'll be an artichoke. Tough and sharp on the outside, with a sweet heart in the middle. I mean, look, my dad was and is a vet, and he was a vet who chose to live his life in opposition to war. So, you know, there weren't a lot of folks he related to. He didn't have a ton of close friends that I saw. But I remember the way that he looked at his friend Ed. They were comrades. You know, they were guys who'd been through real trauma, real fights. People who'd fought just to be seen. And even when I was eight or nine years old, I could see the way my dad loved and admired his friend Ed. I could see it when he looked at him, hear it when he talked about him. And, you know, I didn't just get to see Ed be tough. I got to see Ed's heart, too. People used to ask him if he could have a girlfriend, which... I mean, kind of rude. And when they would ask him that, he'd point to his son, Lee, and he'd say, how the f*** do you think I got him? I used to get to ride on Ed's chair. He'd invite me up there and we'd cruise around. And I saw how he turned his difference into something like a superpower. We used to sit in his seats at the Coliseum to watch the A's. He was a big baseball fan. The Coliseum was built in the in the early 60s, and it's barely accessible. But what that actually ended up meaning was that the wheelchair seats were really good seats. That was exciting. And Ed was funny, really funny. And he just, you know, he was fighting for his life his whole life. He just didn't have time for bullshit. He just run somebody over. I mean, literally. If someone was standing in his way, if someone was giving him baloney, he would literally run them over with his giant wheelchair because what the hell were they going to do about it? If Ed caught somebody pitying him, he would tell them off. He was ferocious. I mean, when those folks who couldn't walk were getting out of their wheelchairs and crawling up the steps of Congress demanding the Americans with Disabilities Act, I knew that they had Ed's spirit even though Ed himself couldn't crawl just as much as he couldn't walk. And so that's why I was crying in my car at a stoplight in Los Angeles, thinking about my dad and his friend 
and those memories from childhood. I was 13 when Ed died, and it was nice to hear his voice. I've had people come up to me and say, Whoa, I'd rather be dead than be like you. Good morning, good morning. And they miss it so much because life is such a joy. There's so much to life if you're into it. There's so many reasons to die if you're not at all. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where yesterday we spotted a party bus that was clearly marked Top Dog Limousines. We can only assume that it was Kendrick Lamar's car. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer at MaxFun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the Go Team. They, along with their label Memphis Industries Records, provided it to us. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, go to MaximumFun.org and you will find it there. And while you're at it, you can check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all of our interviews, clips, and highlights there, too. You can also find them on our YouTube page, all of our interviews. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.